This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. The Prince and the Pauper by Mark Twain. Chapter 22. A Victim of Treachery. Once more King Fufu I was roving with the tramps and outlaws, a butt for their coarse jests and dull-witted railleries, and sometimes the victim of small spitefulnesses at the hands of Canty and Hugo, when the ruffler's back was turned. None but Canty and Hugo really disliked him. Some of the others liked him, and all admired his pluck and spirit. During two or three days Hugo, in whose ward and charge the king was, did what he covertly could to make the boy uncomfortable. And at night, during the customary orgies, he amused the company by putting small indignities upon him, always as if by accident. Twice he stepped upon the king's toes, accidentally, and the king, as became his royalty, was contemptuously unconscious of it, and indifferent to it. But the third time Hugo entertained himself in that way, the king felled him to the ground with a cudgel, to the prodigious delight of the tribe. Hugo, consumed with anger and shame, sprang up, seized a cudgel, and came at his small adversary in a fury. Instantly a ring was formed around the gladiators, and the betting and cheering began. But poor Hugo stood no chance whatever. His frantic and lubberly prentice-work found but a poor market for itself, when pitted against an arm which had been trained by the first masters of Europe in single-stick, quarter-staff, and every art and trick of swordsmanship. The little king stood, alert but at graceful ease, and caught and turned aside the thick rain of blows, with a facility and precision which set the motley onlookers wild with admiration. And every now and then, when his practised eye detected an opening, and a lightning-swift rap upon Hugo's head followed as a result, the storm of cheers and laughter that swept the place was something wonderful to hear. At the end of fifteen minutes Hugo, all battered, bruised, and the target for a pitiless bombardment of ridicule, slunk from the field, and the unscathed hero of the fight was seized and borne aloft upon the shoulders of the joyous rabble to the place of honor beside the ruffler, where with vast ceremony he was crowned King of the Gamecocks, his meaner title being at the same time solemnly cancelled and annulled, and a decree of banishment from the gang pronounced against any who should thenceforth utter it. All attempts to make the king serviceable to the troop had failed. He had stubbornly refused to act. Moreover, he was always trying to escape. He had been thrust into an unwatched kitchen the first day of his return. He not only came forth empty-handed, but tried to rouse the housemates. He was sent out with a tinker to help him at his work. He would not work. Moreover, he threatened the tinker with his own soldering-iron. And finally both Hugo and the tinker found their hands full with a mere matter of keeping him from getting away. He delivered the thunders of his royalty upon the heads of all who hampered his liberties, or tried to force him to service. He was sent out, in Hugo's charge, in company with a slatternly woman and a diseased baby, to beg. But the result was not encouraging. He declined to plead for the mendicants, or be a party to their cause in any way. Thus several days went by, and the miseries of this tramping life, and the weariness, and sordidness, and meanness, and vulgarity of it, became gradually and steadily so intolerable to the captive that he began at last to feel that his release from the hermit's knife must prove only a temporary respite from death at best. But at night, in his dreams, these things were forgotten, and he was on his throne and master again. 
This, of course, intensified the sufferings of the awakening, so the mortifications of each succeeding morning of the few that passed between his return to bondage and the combat with Hugo grew bitterer and bitterer, and harder and harder to bear. The morning after that combat Hugo got up with a heart filled with vengeful purposes against the king. He had two plans in particular. One was to inflict upon the lad what would be to his proud spirit and imagined royalty a peculiar humiliation, and if he failed to accomplish this, his other plan was to put a crime of some kind upon the king, and then betray him into implacable clutches of the law. In pursuance of the first plan he proposed to put a climb upon the king's leg, rightly judging that that would mortify him to the last and perfect degree, and as soon as the climb should operate he meant to get Canty's help, and force the king to expose his leg in the highway, and beg for alms. Climb was the cant term for a sore artificially created. To make a climb, the operator made a paste or poultice of unslaked lime, soap, and the rust of old iron, and spread it upon a piece of leather, which was then bound tightly upon the leg. This would presently fret off the skin, and make the flesh raw and angry-looking. Blood was then rubbed upon the limb, which, being fully dried, took on a dark and repulsive color. Then a bandage of soiled rags was put on in a cleverly careless way, which would allow the hideous ulcer to be seen and move the compassion of the passer-by. Footnote. From the English Rogue, London, 1665. End of footnote. Hugo got the help of the tinker, whom the king had cowed with the soldering iron. They took the boy out on a tinkering tramp, and as soon as they were out of sight of the camp, they threw him down, and the tinker held him, while Hugo bound the poultice tight and fast upon his leg. The king raged and stormed, and promised to hang the two the moment the sceptre was in his hand again, but they kept a firm grip upon him, and enjoyed his impotent strugglings, and jeered at his threats. This continued until the poultice began to bite, and in no long time its work would have been perfected if there had been no interruption. But there was, for about this time the slave, who had made the speech denouncing England's laws, appeared on the scene and put an end to the enterprise, and stripped off the poultice and bandage. The king wanted to borrow his deliverer's cudgel and warm the jackets of the two rascals on the spot, but the man said no, it would bring trouble, leave the matter till night. The whole tribe being together, then the outside world would not venture to interfere or interrupt. He marched the party back to camp and reported the affair to the ruffler, who listened, pondered, and then decided that the king should not be again detailed to beg, since it was plain he was worthy of something higher and better. Wherefore, on the spot, he promoted him from the mendicant rank, and appointed him to steal. Hugo was overjoyed. He had already tried to make the king steal, and failed, but there would be no more trouble of that sort now, for, of course, the king would not dream of defying a distinct command delivered directly from headquarters. So he planned a raid for that very afternoon, proposing to get the king and the law's grip in the course of it, and to do it, too, with such ingenious strategy, that it should seem to be accidental and unintentional. For the king of the gamecocks was popular now, and the gang might not deal over-gently with an unpopular member who played so serious a treachery upon him as the delivering him over to the common enemy, the law. Very well. All in good time Hugo strolled off to the neighboring village with his prey, and the two drifted slowly up and down one street after another, the one watching sharply for a sure chance to achieve his evil purpose and the other watching as sharply for a chance to dart away and get free of his infamous captivity forever. 
both threw away some tolerably fair-looking opportunities, for both, in their secret hearts, were resolved to make absolutely sure work this time, and neither meant to allow his fevered desires to seduce him into any venture that had much uncertainty about it. Hugo's chance came first, for at last a woman approached who carried a fat package of some sort in a basket. Hugo's eyes sparkled with sinful pleasure as he said to himself, "'Breath of my life! And I can but put that upon him! Tis good, den, and God keep thee king of the gamecocks!' He waited and watched, outwardly patient, but inwardly consuming with excitement, till the woman had passed by, and the time was ripe, and then said in a low voice, "'Tarry here till I come again!' and darted stealthily after the prey. The king's heart was filled with joy he could make his escape now, if Hugo's quest only carried him far enough away. But he was to have no such luck. Hugo crept behind the woman, snatched the package, and came running back, wrapping it in an old piece of blanket which he had carried on his arm. The hue and cry was raised in a moment by the woman, who knew her loss by the lightening of her burden, although she had not seen the pilfering done. Hugo thrust the bundle into the king's hands without halting, saying, now speed ye after me with the rest, and cry, Stop thief! But mind ye lead them astray. The next moment Hugo turned a corner and darted down a crooked alley, and in another moment or two he lounged into view again, looking innocent and indifferent, and took up a position behind a post to watch results. The insulted king threw the bundle on the ground, and the blanket fell away from it just as the woman arrived, with an augmenting crowd at her heels. She seized the king's wrists with one hand, snatched up her bundle with the other, and began to pour out a tirade of abuse upon the boy while he struggled without success to free himself from her grip. Hugo had seen enough. His enemy was captured, and the law would get him now. So he slipped away, jubilant and chuckling, and wended campwards framing a judicious version of the matter to give to the ruffler's crew as he strode along. The king continued to struggle in the woman's strong grasp, and now and then cried out in vexation, "'Unhand me, thou foolish creature! It was not I that bereaved thee of thy paltry goods!' The crowd closed around, threatening the king and calling him names. A brawny blacksmith in leather apron and sleeves rolled to his elbows made a reach for him, saying he would trounce him well for a lesson. But just then a long sword flashed in the air and fell with convincing force upon the man's arm, flat side down, the fantastic owner of it remarking pleasantly at the same time, "'Marry, good souls, let us proceed gently, not with ill blood and uncharitable words. This is matter for the law's consideration, not private and unofficial handling. Loose thy hold from the boy, good wife.' The blacksmith averaged the stalwart soldier with a glance, then went muttering away, rubbing his arm. The woman released the boy's wrist reluctantly. The crowd eyed the stranger unlovingly, but prudently closed their mouths. The king sprang to his deliverer's side with flushed cheeks and sparkling eyes, exclaiming, "'Thou hast lagged sorely, but thou comest in good season now, Sir Miles. Carve me this rabble to rags!' End of chapter 22 Chapter Twenty Three, The Prince, a Prisoner. Hendon forced back a smile and bent down and whispered in the king's ear, "Softly, softly, my prince, wag thy tongue warily. Nay, suffer it not to wag at all. Trust in me; all shall go well in the end." Then he added to himself, "Sir Miles, bless me! I had totally forgot I was a knight. Lord, how marvellous a thing it is! The grip his memory doth take upon his quaint and crazy fancies." An empty and foolish title is mine, and yet it is something to have deserved it. 
for I think it is more honour to be held worthy to be a spectre-knight in his kingdom of dreams and shadows than to be held base enough to be an earl in some of the real kingdoms of this world. The crowd fell apart to admit a constable, who approached and was about to lay his hand upon the king's shoulder, when Hendon said, "'Gently, good friend, withhold your hand. He shall go peaceably. I am responsible for that. Lead on, we will follow.' The officer led with the woman and her bundle. Miles and the king followed after, with the crowd at their heels. The king was inclined to rebel, but Hendon said to him in a low voice, "'Reflect, sire. Your laws are the wholesome breath of your own royalty. Shall their source resist them, yet require the branches to respect them? Apparently one of these laws has been broken. When the king is on his throne again, can it ever grieve him to remember that when he was seemingly a private person, he loyally sunk the king in the citizen, and submitted to its authority?' Thou art right, say no more. Thou shalt see that whatsoever the King of England requires a subject to suffer under the law, he will himself suffer while he holdeth the station of a subject." When the woman was called upon to testify before the Justice of the Peace, she swore that the small prisoner at the bar was the person who had committed the theft. There was none able to show the contrary. So the King stood convicted. The bundle was now unrolled, and when the contents proved to be a plump little dressed pig, the judge looked troubled, whilst Hendon turned pale, and his body was thrilled with an electric shiver of dismay. But the king remained unmoved, protected by his ignorance. The judge meditated, during an ominous pause, then turned to the woman with a question. "'What dost thou hold this property to be worth?' The woman curtsied and replied, Three shillings and eight pence, your worship. I could not abate a penny and set forth the value honestly.' The justice glanced around uncomfortably upon the crowd, then nodded to the constable, and said, "'Clear the court, and close the doors.' It was done. None remained but the two officials, the accused, the accuser, and Miles Hendon. This latter was rigid and colourless, and on his forehead big drops of cold sweat gathered, broke and blended together, and trickled down his face. The judge turned to the woman again, and said, in a compassionate voice, "'Tis a poor, ignorant lad, and mayhap was driven hard by hunger, for these be grievous times for the unfortunate. Mark you, he hath not an evil face. But when hunger driveth—good woman, dost know that when one steals a thing above the value of thirteen pence halfpenny, the law saith he shall hang for it?' The little king started wide-eyed with consternation, but controlled himself and held his peace. But not so the woman. She sprang to her feet shaking with fright, and cried out, "'Oh, good lack! What have I done? God a mercy! I would not hang the poor thing for the whole world! Ah! Save me from this, your worship! What shall I do? What can I do?' The justice maintained his judicial composer, and simply said, "'Doubtless it is allowable to revise the value, since it is not yet writ upon the record.' "'Then, in God's name, call the pig eightpence, and heaven bless the day that freed my conscience of this awesome thing!' Miles Hendon forgot all decorum in his delight, and surprised the king, and wounded his dignity by throwing his arms around him and hugging him. The woman made her grateful adieu, and started away with her pig, and when the constable opened the door for her, he followed her out into the narrow hall. The justice proceeded to write in his record-book. Hendon, always alert, thought he would like to know why the officer followed the woman out, so he slipped softly into the dusky hall and listened. He heard a conversation to this effect. "'It is a fat pig, and promises good eating. I will buy it of thee. Here is the eightpence.' 
Eightpence, indeed! Thou do no such thing. It cost me three shillings and eightpence, good honest coin of the last reign that old Harry that's just dead ne'er touched nor tampered with. A fig for thy eightpence! Stands the wind in that quarter? Thou wast under oath, and so swore falsely when thou saidst the value was but eightpence. Come straightway back with me before his worship, and answer for the crime, and then the lad will hang. There, there, dear heart, say no more, I, I am content. Uh, give me the eightpence, and hold thy peace about the matter. The woman went off crying. Hendon slipped back into the court-room, and the constable presently followed, after hiding his prize in some convenient place. The justice wrote a while longer, then read the king a wise and kindly lecture, and sentenced him to a short imprisonment in the common jail, to be followed by a public flogging. The astounded king opened his mouth, and was probably going to order the good judge to be beheaded on the spot, but he caught a warning sign from Hendon, and succeeded in closing his mouth again before he lost anything out of it. Hendon took him by the hand now, made reverence to the justice, and the two departed in the wake of the constable toward the jail. The moment the street was reached, the inflamed monarch halted, snatched away his hand, and exclaimed, "'Idiot! Dost imagine I will enter a common jail alive?' Hendon bent down, and said somewhat sharply, "'Will you trust in me? Peace, and forbear to worsen our chances with dangerous speech. What God wills will happen. Thou canst not hurry it, thou canst not alter it. Therefore wait, and be patient.' "'Twill be time enow to rail or rejoice, when what is to happen has happened.'" Footnote. Death for trifling larcenies. When Connecticut and New Haven were framing their first codes, larceny above the value of twelve pence was a capital crime in England, as it had been since the time of Henry I. Dr. J. Hammond Trumbull's Blue Laws, True and False, page 13. The curious old book called The English Rogue makes the limit thirteen pence apenny, death being the portion of any who steal a thing, quote, above the value of thirteen pence halfpenny, unquote. End of footnote. End of chapter 23